front of you, there should be a, uh, a blue one, and we'll be on page 577 in those Bibles, page 577. Uh, if you're new with us, welcome. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and most weeks it's my uh, privilege to work our way with Church on Mill through a book of the Bible, passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, until we cover the whole thing. Right now we're doing something uh, highly unusual for us, is we're trying to cover what the Bible says on a particular topic, and so we're moving around in different books in order to get a sense of what the Bible as a whole says on the issue of uh, money and possessions. And so today we'll be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. By way of introduction, though, um, Cotton Mather was, by anyone's standards, a brilliant man. He entered Harvard at age 12, graduated with a master's at 18, went on to author some 450 books. Have you read 450 books, let alone authored them? It's amazing. In 1702, Mather published his most important work. It's essentially a a history of the church in early colonial America. Now, at over a thousand pages, we won't read it together this morning. However, I'd love to read a single sentence. I quote, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. What Mather meant is, as he considered everything that God had accomplished through the early churches in north part of this country, so New England, he was filled with gratitude, but he was also filled with concern. Because as people lived out their faith in early colonial America, income gradually rose. And as income increased, the spiritual health of the colonies decreased. As people trusted money more, they trusted God less. As children were born and grew up with greater wealth than their parents ever could have imagined, the temptation to depend on wealth, not God, grew exponentially. Mather's position was that financial prosperity was the cannibal of the Christianity that helped produce that wealth in the first place. As Mather implied, and even more importantly, as the Bible explicitly teaches, if we proceed into more and more and more wealth, then we ought to do so with a sense of holy concern, concern over the temptations that wealth will bring. Now, in our passage for today, we'll see that financial prosperity is not wrong. In fact, it can be very, very good. But it does come with potential and particular dangers. But not just dangers, it also comes with opportunities. So as we listen, as Carol Schneeflock reads for us, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, would you listen for those? Listen for the particular dangers given and the responsibilities articulated as well. As for the rich in this present age, 
Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Thanks, Carol. Last Sunday, if you were with us, you'll remember that we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Deuteronomy 8 is a warning about wealth ahead. It was Moses standing on the opposite side of the Jordan River, thinking about the people of God headed into what would be a land of prosperity. They were poor at the present moment, but would be prosperous in the future. So he warned them about wealth to come. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the exact opposite. It is a warning and an instruction about wealth in the present. So last week, our warning was towards something ahead. This week, our warning is towards something already here. Now, one huge challenge we've got to acknowledge before we even really begin to talk about the text is the fact that probably nobody in this room thinks this text is about them. As you noticed, it starts with the the words to the rich in this present age. If there were name tags in the back and they said, to those who are rich in the present age, that's me, no one would have picked one up this morning. They would still be back there. But frankly, when compared with the rest of the world, the majority of us would rightly be called rich. Now, I don't mean rich in the sense of the American dream of the very few who make millions and millions of dollars, but rich by the global standard of having more than we need. Many of us have an abundance of resources exceeding what would be the normal experience for most people who have ever lived. And the things we count on as absolutely essential to life, the majority of the world would not. Think, for example, about ice in our water, ACs in our houses, cable on our TVs, hot water in our showers, lattes at will. These are things most of the world can't imagine having. And yet we consider them necessities. Friends, many of us, globally speaking, are rich. And certainly if you fall in the upper end of middle class, then you would be among the 1% of the most wealthy people who have ever lived. We are generally and broadly speaking a rich people. So let's move past thinking that this doesn't apply to us and rather consider the ways in which God would speak this important word to our own situation. Now 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 is short, it's only a few verses, and they make a single point. The point is this, financially comfortable Christians must avoid particular pitfalls and embrace particular opportunities. 
This text lays out both pitfalls to watch out for and opportunities to seize. And so in our few minutes we have together this morning, I just want to visit with you about what those are. Let's think together first about the particular pitfalls we are to avoid. There's two of them. Listen as I read verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. If you're called a haughty, this is not good, apparently. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything we need. The first pitfall we're told to avoid is the tendency for rich people to be proud people. Financially comfortable Christians are tempted to believe lies about their self-worth. Friend, your income level or the amount of stuff you own or the breadth of your investments are not a true assessment of your worth. You see, your net worth renders you no more valuable than anyone else. The value of a human being is not caught up in how much you have or in your potential to earn more and more and more and more and more. Your value is 100% fully caught up in the fact that you're a human being made in the image of God. That makes you and you and you and you. It makes all people everywhere of an incalculable value in the eyes of God. The person who earns six figures and the person living on minimum wage are of absolute equal value in the eyes of God. If that's hard for you to believe, it shows the distance between our typical worldview and the worldview of the Bible. Those with financial wealth face a real danger against pride, and a pride of a different kind than someone of less means has. Those of us who have more will be tempted to inflate our self-worth. It's easy to see how that would happen, isn't it? If you go to work, you work hard, you're successful, you get promoted, you make more money, it's so easy, therefore, to look around at everybody else and turn up your nose and say, if you had worked harder, this would be you. It's, I think in many ways, the most simple response. If you've caught some nice breaks... It's easy to smugly look around and say, you have less because you are less. But church, our self-worth is in no way connected to our net worth. Despite what that internal little voice yells in our ears, despite the message of the world, human beings are created equal, equal in value, equal in dignity equal in worth. And we are all tempted towards pride. But those with riches are the most tempted towards pride. May we run from it and embrace humility. But this temptation towards an inflated sense of self-worth is not the only thing we're told to watch out for. There's another issue that we will face There's the temptation to trust in wealth. You see, financial 
comfortable, financially comfortable Christians are tempted to believe lies about security. That's what the second half of verse 17 is about. It says not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Brother or sister, if your savings account is growing, if your retirement is compounding nicely, if, believe it or not, your student loans are paid off, if you have more and nicer possessions today than you did the year before, then in many ways it's the most natural thing in the world to look around at what you can see and hold and taste and feel and to sense inside, my hope is in my money and my hope is paying off. But that is not true. Hope is a terrible source of hope. Hope is a terrible source. I'm saying it wrong the second time. Your pastor is a terrible source of speaking. Money is a terrible place to place your hope. I still didn't like that. It's so easy to hope in money. It's better when I read it. God is the only legitimate place to put your hope. Money is a terrible source of lasting happiness. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For it suddenly sprouts wings flying away like an eagle toward heaven. Friends, money is undependable and uncertain. It's pictured here in Proverbs as an eagle that sprouts wings and flies away. So consider these examples of ways that can happen. Do you see that you are just one car accident away from never working again? And if you aren't among the very few that have lasting disability through your company, then you will end up on a mere number of pennies to survive. You will barely scrape by. You are one car accident away from your wealth sprouting wings and flying away. Do you watch the news? Have you seen how fragile our economy is? Unstable, Volatile politicians make massive decisions every day. And sometimes, especially right now, it feels like Washington treats the rest of the country like a chessboard in which one king is fighting with another and we're caught in the middle. You cannot hope in your wealth. You cannot hope that the next person elected to office will be more stable than the last and that therefore you can count on the government to provide an environment, environment in which your wealth will always be increasing. Whoever goes to Washington next may be exactly the way our wealth flies away. Don't you see that to be healthy today does not mean you will be healthy tomorrow. 
you are just one diagnosis away from every penny you owe own being caught up in medical bills. And that diagnosis may, in fact, last your entire life. Your health may fly away with your wealth. Do you see that even now as I'm talking, your house may be getting broken into? And the few little things that you prize as most dear may be gone when you get home. Now, if that happens, I'm not colluding with anyone. (laughs) But your possessions may fly away. Friends, riches are the most uncertain things in life. But God, the scriptures tell us, is solid rock. Riches are uncertain, but God is super certain. James 1 verse 17 puts it this way, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This means that God can be counted on. God is stable. God is not volatile. God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. God always does what's right. God is for you, Christian, and always will be. What he does is the same because he is the same. Numbers verse 23, Numbers chapter 23, 19, tucked away in a book you may not have read in a long, long time, says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Friend, God doesn't change his mind about something good he's pledged to do. He doesn't get bored and move on to someone more exciting. He never breaks a promise. He never needs course correction because he miscalculated. What God promises is as good as done. Pun intended, you can take it to the bank. Everything God wants to do, he is able to do. This means that all of his promises are certain and sure. He is the God of infinite power. His government is always open. You can forever depend on him. The only dependable, appropriate place to place your hope is in Christ. Church, our security is not in our money, nor is it in our possessions. It is in the only place that is worthy of hope, God. And this God promises that he will meet every single one of our needs. And if you look closely at verse 17, he meets our needs, not merely that we might scrape by. There's two little words there that are shocking. To enjoy. Friend, what God gives you, he gives you that you might enjoy it. He gives you that you might savor the taste of food, that you might enjoy whatever clothes you wear that you might lay down in your bed and like it, that you might turn on a show and find it to be relaxing. These are good gifts from a good God, given not from one who thinks we must be ascetic, 
but one who invites us to enjoy whatever he entrusts us with as a reflection of his kindness to us in Christ. So let us set our hope in God. Amen? I was thinking this morning about uh, these little weird things. It says, the United States of America, in God we trust. How easy is it to use these? having placed our hope here, saying, in money we trust. You cannot count on these. You can always count on Him. This is what Paul tells us, brothers and sisters, that we must turn from prideful thoughts about inflated self-worth and turn from misplaced hope in wealth because only God is truly dependable. Now, if that were all we had to say today, this would be a rather negative message. These are the don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do this. But thankfully, by God's grace, this passage also gives us things to do. It tells us what to turn from, but also what to turn to. It gives us a better vision of life. It says, in essence, that if God has given you an atypical amount of resources, then you, brother or sister, have an outsized ability to make an impact for Christ, that God has entrusted to you what he, in fact, has not entrusted to most people who have ever lived. Certainly all Christians have a responsibility to be generous, but those with more have more opportunity to do good. Now listen for the things that he shares in verse 18. He says they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Friends, all Christians, but financially comfortable Christians especially, are told to do good. All Christians, but financially comfortable Christians especially, are to be rich in good works. Friends, all Christians, but financially comfortable Christians especially, are to be generous and ready to share. All three of those things are about leveraging time and money and possessions for the advance of the church. They're about using what God has given us that God might work through us toward the end of helping others. Doing good, being rich in good works, being generous are all ways to love. They're ways to love people and promote the spread of the gospel. Friend, if God has given you much, then much is asked from you. And that's nothing to bemoan but rather a joyful gift to receive. It's as though God's giving you a front court seat to his actions around the world. It's as though your resources are being harnessed by the power of God to accomplish spiritual things. 
What an amazing opportunity. These actions and attitudes stem from an awareness that all that we have is a gift from God. And this is, of course, the very essence of Christianity, that God, who owed us nothing, gave us everything in Christ. And that now that God lives in us, that we who brought nothing to him have all the resources to do everything God would want us to do. I love the way Paul puts this in Ephesians 4. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christians, you are beloved children of God. This means that you are a son or daughter adopted into his kingdom, welcome at his table. You are no longer in the scraps, but up eating the main course. You are a child of God and will be forever by his grace. And therefore, you have been entrusted with the most wonderful thing, you are a recipient of the love of God that now through you that love of God might extend to others. And so Christians are people who walk in love because Christ loved us. We are people who forgive because we have been forgiven. We live below our means so that we can freely give since we've been rescued by the one who gave up all things that we might know him. This is a wonderful spot if you're here today and not a Christian to say, this is a window into understanding what the message of Christianity is all about. See, friend, the Bible teaches that God is holy and eternal and powerful and in charge. The Bible also teaches that human beings are made in his image. And yet because of sin, we are deeply flawed. We have come off the factory line, if you will, broken. We have all universally rejected God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the first century to live the life that all people are called to live in order that then he could offer himself as a substitute in which all the sin of everyone who would ever accept Jesus were placed onto Christ, so that as he died, the debt, not financial, but moral, the debt of sin was paid by Christ. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, a historical fact to demonstrate his victory over sin and death and the devil. And now he reigns and rules over all things. And friend, the gospel, the essential message of the Bible is not Clean yourself up and give your way out of your moral debt. But it is rather turn from self-reliance to the one who gave himself for you. Give up being in charge and entrust the one in whom all hope is rightly placed.
Friend, that's what the Scriptures call you to today. That's what the majority of people in this room have already experienced and would love for you to stick around and ask them questions afterwards. That's the opportunity to you, extended to you today in the gospel. Frankly, if you're not a member of this church and not a follower of Christ, we are not at all interested in your money. Keep it. But God is interested in saving sinners. And that may be you. Perhaps this is the day that you will be saved. It is to that end that we have been praying. Now, church, we'll talk more about giving next week in passages specifically about this. But notice as you glance through those three verses, 17, 18, 19, you will find no instruction against materialism toward asceticism. I put that in a different way. To be rich is not to be wrong. If you have made wealth, praise God. For he has entrusted to you the gifts that enabled you to make that wealth in the first place. If you married into it, then you're even smarter. (laughs) But friend, money is not bad. Having lots of it is not wrong. Enjoying good food, wearing nice clothes, driving a car that you can count on starting when you push the button. These are great things. Friends, what's wrong is to invest your hope and to find your self-worth in what you've been given. What's wrong is to hoard. What's wrong is to look down on others. But it is not wrong to be wealthy, even very wealthy. I love the phrase in verse 18, that says we're to be generous and ready to share. Certainly an aspect of generosity is giving money directly to the church to advance the work of the gospel through this church family. Imagine what would happen if every church member took that command seriously. We would, instead of having to slow things down, we would be finding new ministries to get involved in. But, Giving is not the totality of what verse 18 calls you to. You see, generosity is also contributing your home, contributing your vacation time, contributing your Saturdays, contributing your car, contributing your time. The wealthier someone becomes, the greater the temptation will be to write a check or make a donation and then walk away. It will be to think, I've done my part, Because I gave. But friend, God gives you the opportunity to go still further. Being generous and ready to share includes planning ahead to love all kinds of different people well. So think of things to do beyond giving financially. It's making a little extra when you cook dinner. So that as opportunity comes, you can invite a neighbor or invite a church member over at literally a moment's notice. Now this one will be even more shocking. 
that's keeping the backseat of your car clean so that as others have need for a ride, they can actually humanely get in there. It's leaving a little bit of margin in your budget so that as you overhear of another need a brother or sister in Christ has, you are able happily to meet that need. It's leaving space in your calendar to disciple a high schooler or a college student who hopefully has a long, long life ahead of them to do good. It's the willingness to give up any and every possession as occasion would require that would make a spiritual impact on somebody else. It's holding things loosely because Christ holds you securely. Fellowship is a a very churchy word, and by it we usually mean putting food in our faces and talking about nothing of significance. But that's not actually biblical fellowship. Fellowship is holding on to Jesus and seeing the gospel as what unites us together. The phrase, ready to share, is actually the verb form of the noun fellowship. So friend, fellowshipping is not a potluck. It's holding everything in common because we share Jesus. It's sharing our cars and our tables. It's giving up our beds. stopping and talking to the person who no one else looks in the eye. It's being generous, commensurate to the generosity given to us by God. And it is absolutely impossible apart from abiding in the grace of God. Church, we're to be rich. Rich in good works. May we grasp more deeply the grace given to us in Christ that we might give more generously for the glory of God and the good of others. If this message has fallen, brother or sister, with conviction, the way to respond to that conviction is not to grit your teeth, and by your own strength decide you're going to give more and more and more. It's also not to look inward and wallow. To look upward where Christ rules and reigns and has given you his spirit that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead could actually make changes in your life in what you do with money. Friend, the very best way to live is not a life in which there is always more month left when the money's gone, but rather a life left where the master King Jesus directs everything you do with your money.
How will you use what God's given you this week? To the glory of God and the good of people. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for all of us, would you take a moment and ask the Lord what He would have you to do? Father, thank you that your word tells us the truth. Tells us the truth about pitfalls we need to watch out for. And in in fact, many of us have fallen into. But it also gives us a higher, better, more joyful, wonderful, amazing vision of life. A life not lived for self, but for the recognition of who you are and the love and care and benefit of fellow people. Father, thank you that your scripture tells us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray certainly for myself and others here this morning, would you forgive us for mishandling what's been appropriated to us? Thank you that you forgive us and cleanse us. And we pray now that you would guide us as we seek to live more and more wisely with what you've entrusted to us. And Father, I pray particularly for any people here today who are unbelievers, people who wouldn't call themselves Christians and have not trusted Christ. Thank you that you bring such people here every Sunday. And we pray, Father, as a church, the non-Christian in the room would not misunderstand this text as saying that Christianity is about money. Christianity is about Christ. And Christ impacts everything, including money. But that friend who may not know you, in fact, needs the riches of your grace far more than worldly riches. So we pray that you would extend yourself now and save. In Jesus' name.